0: Doug wanted to be here. Doug planned on being here. Doug had a lesson that would might be the best thing that he's ever preached on this day, but we'll never know, because <laughs> he's sick, and he still wanted to come. And the elders, I would like to think they were looking out for Doug and his health and well-being. I think they didn't want to get the stomach bug either, so they told him to stay home. And so I'm here, and uh, I'm pleased. To be here and uh, I look around this room and I see a lot of friends and a lot of people that I care about and love and a couple weeks ago my wife and I had a uh, event in our life that caused us to have some hard conversations our life insurance dues were due and so we had some difficult talks about you know what do we want to leave behind if we pass before our kids are grown and so of course finances was a part of that conversation as the life insurance policy was due, but we had other conversations in that same train of thought. And I did an exercise in my mind, what if I could only leave one thing? Money's important. I would paid my life insurance dues. (laughs) I want my kids financially taken care of. But as we talked, and we talked about our last wishes and thoughts and children and this and that, it occurred to me That the thing, if I can only leave one thing, I think that it would be this. A deep and abiding attachment to people of faith. And I look around this room, and church, it's you. It's you. And so um, that's what I want to talk about today is attachment. Um, There's some research that was done in the 1950s. A man by the name of Harry Harlow did some studies that was dubbed the Monkey Love Experiments. And what he chose to do was see how bonds form between infant rhesus monkeys and their mothers. And so to do this, he would take a newborn rhesus monkey and remove it from its natural mother, and he had two types of sur- surrogate machine mothers. These were These were basically robots that the only thing that they could really do was dispense milk to these infant rhesus monkeys. Now, the uh, only difference between the two types of machines was one was wire mesh. Think chicken wire. And the other was made of a nice, soft, welcoming cloth. Now, if given a choice, the infants always chose the terry cloth, nice, soft parent However, for the research, the monkeys were divided into two groups. Both sets of monkeys drank the same amount of milk from their robot parent. Both grew to approximately the same size. That's where the similarities stopped. Emotionally, the two groups of monkeys developed very differently. And so, to test this, Harlow would put the monkeys under a great deal of stress. He would startle them with loud sounds or bright flashing lights. Now the monkeys that had the terry cloth parent would run to their surrogate mother and begin to cope with the stress and would recover from the stress quickly. The monkeys with the wire mesh parent would sit in the corner alone, apart from their surrogate parent, and would rock back and forth and just shriek. And sometimes it it might take days to for the signs of trauma to leave the monkeys. Now attachment was the word that Harlow keyed on with his research. Attachment requires closeness. In the most shallow sense of the word, attachment only requires that you're near something else. But the wire mesh parents were just as close as the terry cloth parents were. So attachment has to be more than just proximity. What really builds attachment other than being physically present? Church, I believe that this might be one of the most important questions that we ponder this day. I believe that attachment requires warmth and approachability. It requires intimacy and vulnerability. And that thought brings us to this time of year, and it's one of my favorite times of year. It's Christmas. And in Luke 2, we read one of the stories that is one of my favorites. And I'm going to start in chapter 8 of Luke 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. We know so little about these men. We know that they were keeping watch at night over their flock. We know that they were terrified when they saw the angel of the Lord we know that they wanted to see the Christ we know they told other people about what they saw we know that they gave glory to God for all that they had seen and we know that they had enough duty to return to their flock what kind of men are shepherds if the teachings of Jesus tell us anything about the man who tend the flocks we know a few things and all of them are glowing Jesus says the following about shepherds. Shepherds know their sheep and call them by name. Shepherds leave the 99 to go find the one lost sheep. Shepherds lay down their life for their sheep. Now, let me bring this around to something that Max Lucado writes, and he's going to contrast shepherds and cowboys, ranchers. Now, I come from generations of men that did a little bit of both, so I've seen both sides of this. Max is going to say that cowboys drive the cattle. The shepherd leads the sheep. A herd has dozens of cowboys. A flock has one shepherd. The cowboy wrestles, brands, herds, and ropes. The shepherd leads, feeds, guides, and anoints. The cowboy knows the name of the trail hands, but the shepherd knows the name of the sheep. The cowboy whoops and hollers at the cows. The shepherds call each sheep gently by name. Let me ask you a question. What did the shepherds go to see? Christ as a child could not perform any miracles yet. He wasn't ready to preach the sermon on the mount. He wasn't ready to lay hands upon the sick and heal them. He was not able to speak and rebuke as one who had the authority of God. No, he was able to. To lie there. And after seeing a heavenly host of angels, why would you get excited about seeing a baby? I'd be telling about the angels and the great host, but they told about seeing a child in a manger. What did they go to see? If you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. The angels and a great many things look more striking than a child wrapped in a cloth. Let me ask a better question. What did they go to experience? Let's compare the two events of the evening, when they're out with the fields and and they get the visit from the angel of the Lord, and when they go and see the child in the manger. They were terrified of the angel. Jesus was approachable. They could not hold the angel. Jesus could be rocked. The angel was only a messenger. Jesus was the message. The birth narrative in the Gospel of John says that Jesus was the word of God, the very logos of God. The Christmas story is beautiful, but not because of the gifts or the star, which actually happens later on. It was beautiful because God said, I want to form an attachment with my sheep. And he sent shepherds to show what that looks like. He says, I want to know them by name and gently lead them. I want to be known by them, not as a cold wire mesh, but as a comforting cloth. It's beautiful because it's about the presence of God with us. The contrast of the experience with the angel and the fields and with the child in the manger tells us this story. If you see me do this exercise before, I apologize. Um, Actually, I copied this from Jeff Walling. But I have two chairs here. And in the beginning, God and man were side by side. Genesis talks about how Adam would go for walks with God in in the garden. And they lived in perfect fellowship with one another. And we all know the story in Genesis 3... (coughs) Adam and Eve sin, and they physically are removed from the garden. And spiritually, they're separated from God. But God was not content with this arrangement. And so God starts a plan. And he looks down. And, it, and the Bible says that Noah walked with God. And God says, come near to me. Through you, I want to start over. Build a boat. Come near to me. And then we fast forward a little bit and we get to Abraham. And God says, Abraham, be in covenant with me. Be like me. Learn my ways. And through you, I'm going to bless all people. And he makes a promise. He says, come near. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob and God literally wrestle. And Jacob is given a new name. He says, come to me. And then we get to Moses. Moses saw the passing glory of God. God tells his special name to Moses. He says, I am the I am. Let me give you my law. And when when God gives his law to Moses, he is revealing himself. He says, Moses, come near to me. Joshua takes the people into the promised land. God says, "I, I, I need this place to live with my people. Come near David had a heart after God's own heart. He sang and he worshipped and he danced before the Lord. He slayed the giants. God says, come near to me, David. God is on this unending plan to bring his people to him. And even when they're in captivity, God is calling them near. He says, Daniel, come near to me. I'll be with you in the lion's den. In the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, is is they're rebuilding the wall after captivity, God just keeps calling them near. He says, come to me. And then finally, we get to Christmas. (laughs) And that's where I've kind of zeroed in today. Jesus is born. And he's a child. And he can be held. And he walks with people. And he touches the lepers. And then we get that story. The Last Supper when John is literally reclining on the very chest of Jesus. Can you imagine hearing the heartbeat of God? And that's the miracle, right? Isn't that what we celebrated this time of year? The fact that God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, came near. And suddenly that separation that we saw in Genesis 3 At that table, in that moment, with people that Jesus was deeply attached to, it's like the curse is lifted. And I could end this lesson right now, and I I could talk about the nearness of God, and we could all go home and safely read our Bibles alone and live life until next week on our own. And we can safely meet back here in this comfortable building next week and repeat it all once again. However, if this is all you do, your attachment is out of whack. Do not allow these pews in the outer shell of what you see here to become a wire mesh robot that mechanically delivers the word of God. Church, God calls us to be attached. People who track church attendance and membership have literally been sounding the alarm my entire life. Americans in mass droves are turning away from church. I've been told that there was a time when fear of hell and hope of heaven motivated people to attend church. And then after that, a era of social pressure and perhaps business contacts led many people to attend. And then churches got into the business of offering programs and entertainment to meet a consumerist, mindset. But America has changed and people rarely think about life after death. The social pressure to attend church left years ago. People can get more entertainment in the palm of their hand on their smartphone than, the, than what they're going to get at Taylor Street and literally years of coming and sitting in purple pews. The church has one card to play if we are to be relevant to Hobbes and to one another. And that card is attachment. Attachment to God and attachment to one another. The research is clear on one other point. People are lonely. The connectivity that is offered on these things actually makes us lonelier and less happy. This week, I want to challenge you to see the world in a different way. Ask yourself, am I approachable? Am I living my life in a way that is open and warm and loving? Use this time of year to draw near not only to God, but to those that need Him. It would be easy to be desirous of having that first experience that the shepherds had with the angel and the lights and the glory of God and the heavenly host. Man, that would be amazing. But I would rather be a people for God wrapped in a cloth that invites the world into our lives and into truly knowing our God. I left these chairs right here. And I hope that theologically that some of you are thinking, Lance, that's not quite right. Because as Jesus was on the cross, on between heaven and earth, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And this symbolically was saying that God no longer lives in buildings, but he offers himself into the hearts of men. And then in Acts 2, Peter's going to get up, and he's going to preach the first gospel sermon ever preached. And he's going along, and he's telling the people, you have a problem with sin, and you have a problem with death. And the people were cut to the heart, and they say, Peter, what do we do about this? And he said, repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of God of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of your sin. Guys, what John had to live through that one night when he was so close to Jesus, God offers us something even better. He says, Christmas can happen in your heart. Your heart can be the manger. God can reside in you. And that is the story of Christmas. If you have needs, of the church. Come as we stand and sing.